Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, here we are, week three, armor for the battle. I want to just kind of recap the last couple weeks, get us everybody up to speed on where we've been, where we are tonight, and then uh, where we're going here the next three weeks. We started out talking about the fact that everything is spiritual. And we see that in this, this core scripture that starts our whole, our whole message for Armor for the Battle. It's that Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And in there, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And he goes on to say, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So right there, we see the aspect that everything is spiritual. You know, we started this a couple weeks ago talking about that in the beginning, God created everything from the spiritual to the natural, you know, the, the theological aspect or the theological truth that goes with that is called ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created the natural out of nothing, which technically is true, but when you look at it from the spiritual side of things, here there was always God because God was never created. He's always been and always will be. And in that realm, the spiritual realm, is where everything comes out of. So we have the root and then the fruit. Everything in the natural has a spiritual root. So we have to understand that first in order to understand spiritual warfare and then to understand how the armor works. So we started there that everything is spiritual. Then last week, we talked about forging the armor. Remember, we all start out this way. We all have a body, soul, and a spirit. The soul is the mind, will, and emotions. And we all start out with that spiritually genetic disease called sin. The Bible calls it sin, and it's at our core. And that sin over time infects our soul, the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. And that leads to those sinful actions. And just using my own life, one of those sinful actions was pornography. The gospel. The gospel is this great exchange where God takes out that sin and replaces it with truth. Thank you, Jesus. Because until that sin is removed, we have no hope. We have absolutely no hope. We are slaves to sin, as the Bible says. But because of the gospel and that great exchange where that truth is now placed in there, we have hope again. But we still have that sin sickness in our soul. You know, again, we talked about that prescription for life last week, that the Word of God is spiritually alive and has the power to save our soul. And like taking physical medicine to heal a physical sickness, we need spiritual medicine to heal our spiritual sickness called sin, that sin infection, that sin sickness that's in our soul. So as we take the Word of God every single day, it begins to release that truth out of our core and into our soul. And it heals the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. And it releases all that. And we talked all about that last week. Now, this week, I want to take not necessarily a step back, but sort of a sidebar in the aspect of the armor. Because I want to talk about law 
tonight. Tonight I'm calling this lawless, which is kind of interesting coming from a former cop. You know, my job as a cop was to enforce the law, was to go into situations and put people under the law. But what I want to do tonight is look at the law from a Christian perspective. The law is so ingrained in our Christian culture, so much so we don't even realize that it's law anymore. We don't even recognize it. It is so ingrained. You know, I was at uh, Starbucks, where all good things happen, and there's a barista at this particular Starbucks I go to. I've been going to this particular Starbucks, this one for, golly, almost probably over a year now. And I mean, I walk in, they know exactly what I want to drink. And I, by the time I get to get my stuff unpacked, they're plopping my drink on my table. I don't even, haven't even ordered yet, and they know what I want. That's how often I go there. But when I go there, this is where I do my one-on-one discipleship with the guys that I sit down with. Over time, I've kind of developed a relationship with some of the baristas, and they're like, what in the world do you do? You're here all the time. Do you have a job? How do you afford all this Starbucks? Do you, what do you do? I said, oh, well, I'm a pastor. And they said, okay, well, what are these guys that come in? What I said, okay, well, what I do is I do what's called discipleship. I sit down with these guys, and I teach them how to become a better Christian. Well, one of the baristas is a brand-new Christian. He just came to know the Lord last April. And when he came up to you this one, he's like, wow, what do you do? And I see you talking about the Bible. He's like, I've got some questions. Can I ask you some questions? I'm like, absolutely. So over the last several months, whenever I'm in there, he'll come up and he'll say, hey, I was reading this. And, and we just sit down and have a great Bible study. It's great. It's a lot of fun. But he's a new Christian. And here's what I was thinking about him in the context of being a new Christian. If you're a new Christian and you want them to get off on a good foot. You want them to get started really well. And I was thinking, okay, what if I were to tell him to memorize at least just one verse? If I were to ask him to memorize one verse, what verse would you think I should tell him to memorize? John 3.16, absolutely, absolutely. And then if, if I were to tell him, you know, there, I mean, there's a million ministries you can get involved with, men's ministry, you know, uh, you, you can get involved with um, food distribution. Oh, there's so many different ministries. But if I were to tell them the most important ministry to be involved in, what would that be? Witnessing. Witnessing, of course. That's what we want to tell them. And then if I were to say, okay, you know, John 3, 16, you need to memorize. You need to be involved in witnessing. Where would I reference that for him in the Bible to say these are really the most important things to be involved with? Where, where would I go to? the gospel? Okay, what specific part of the gospels? Where does Jesus tell us to do these things? Matthew 28. Absolutely. The Great Commission. Here's the thing. If I were to sit down in a, in a room like this, anywhere I go in the Christian world, I guarantee you I would come close to getting those three answers every single time. Now, I'm certainly not saying those things are bad, because they aren't. They are fantastic things to do. But why are they consistently told over and over and over and over again? They are important. But what have we done to them? We've turned them into law. 
This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be out there witnessing. Why aren't you out there witnessing? Why is everybody in here tonight not out at Starbucks witnessing somebody? How come you don't have John 3.16 memorized? And, you know, you're not fulfilling the Great Commission if you're not witnessing you don't memorize John 3.16. What we've done is we've turned it into law. Now, on the surface, that may not look like a bad thing. Well, you know, that's what we want them to do. So what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. The Bible is designed to be life. But what the enemy has done, he has deceived us into turning it into law. And here's the problem. Life is what Jesus wants to give us. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. When we turn life into law, we end up with death. We always end up with death. And here's, here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute and look at some theology. Now, I don't usually do a lot of in-depth theology because I'm more of a, a practical type person when I teach. But I do want to touch on a couple theological aspects to show you that law is death. Because it's so important for us to understand that law always leads to death. Because if we don't understand that, we'll think it's an okay weapon or an okay tool or an okay system to use in the church, and it's not. Right off the bat, we're going to start off with a verse that answers the question, why law is death? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 56. Now, there's a lot of different ways this is interpreted as far as different versions. So it might sound different in your Bible than the way I read it. But here's the version I'm reading. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says this. For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. The law gives sin its power. Another version says, for the power of sin is law. And Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So if the law gives sin its power and power leads to death, if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C, law will lead to death. And we don't realize that. We miss that. And in my opinion, I think this is one of the most important verses for Christians to memorize. The power of sin is the law. Because when we don't understand the aspect of the law and we use it, what we don't realize is we're doing just the opposite of what we want to do here. We are actually empowering the sin that is within us, not stopping it. So let me look at the theology real quick. I'm going to go down a theological trail real quick to give you an idea of the importance of understanding the law. And in this theology path, you're going to see an aspect of the gospel you may never have seen before. See, the gospel is not just about saving us from hell. 
The gospel is so much bigger than that. And I want to show you a theological aspect of the gospel in re- as it relates to the law. Because the thing about the gospel, the gospel frees us from sin. But how does it do that? I've never really thought of it until I really went in depth on this. I never thought, how does the gospel really free us from sin? Because obviously Jesus paid the penalty of sin for us. But how does it free us from sin? Now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says this. This is about the law. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, and this is what he's talking about. Remember we talked about Romans 7. talks about the difference between the symptom and sin itself. And he says sin. And he's talking about the sin sickness that's in me. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveted, covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, here's the theology part. It starts in Romans chapter 6. Now, if you want all these references, I can give them to you. There's, I'm kind of jumping around. But it's Romans 6, Romans 7, and the Galatians 3. And I'm just kind of pulling a lot of stuff out, and I, I don't want to go too far with this. But Romans 6 says this, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, we just had baptism on Sunday. And the symbolism of baptism is that we are buried with Christ in death and then raised to walk with him in newness of life. What is the significance of the death? Why do we have to die? Well, he goes into that in Romans 7. In Romans chapter 7, verses 2 through 6, and this is sort of a a compilation of that. It's not all those verses specifically. But he talks about a married woman being bound to her husband. And that as long as the husband lives, the wife is under law, the law of marriage. And if she goes and marries somebody else or hooks up with somebody else, she commits adultery because she's breaking the law. But if her husband dies, she is now free from the law. So in order to be free from the law, there has to be death. And then Paul goes on to say this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. But now we are released from law having died to what which held us captive so that we will serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the letter. Here's why it's so important to understand this aspect of the gospel, that we have died with Jesus in Christ. The illustration Paul uses is a wife and her husband. And he uses the woman in the illustration. says, if the husband dies, she's free from the law. But he doesn't say if the woman dies. Technically, she's free from the law, but she's dead. So that's really not going to be a good positive. So we can be free from the law if we die. But that doesn't work out too well for us. So guess who died for us? Jesus. So not only did he pay the penalty for our sin, his death 
is applied to us and we die with him in baptism to the law. See, the gospel doesn't just get us to heaven. It gets us to heaven by freeing us from sin. But to free us from sin, we have to be freed from the law. Because the power of sin is the law. That's what the gospel does. The gospel frees us from the law because spiritually we have died. And we are dead. The only way we can serve God is if we're dead to the law. Because we cannot serve both God and law. It's exactly like the woman. The woman is bound to her husband through law. And as long as he's alive... She cannot serve another. She cannot marry another. As long as we're under the law, the law becomes our God. And we serve the law, and we cannot serve God. The only way we can serve God is if we're freed from the law, but the only way we can be free from the law is if we die. But guess who died for us? And God imputes to us that death to free us from the law so we can serve God. Now, if you look in Galatians, in the book of Galatians, specifically chapter 3, the whole book of Galatians is really deep on this. But in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul says to the Galatians, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? In other words, what the Galatians had done was they accepted the gospel as far as Jesus, but now they were going back to the law. And Paul's saying, you can't do that because you're free from the law. But if you want to go back to the law, then you have to leave Christ because you can't do both. It's one or the other. Just like a few few weeks ago, Paul, I mean, uh, Paul, I'm... Pastor will love that I accidentally called him Paul. That's awesome. Pastor said, you can't serve both God and money. Well, you can't serve both God and law. And yet we try and do it all the time. But the gospel has freed us from that law. And and there's so much more to that, but I, I really don't want to spend too much time on that because I want to look at it from a practical sense of how do I know if I've got law in my life? How do I know if I'm actually serving law? I don't want to just throw this out and everybody go, hmm, gee, I wonder if I've got it. Well, we're going to find out tonight if you've got it. And I'm telling you right now, every single one of us in here, me included, to one degree or another, has law in our lives. But here's the thing about the law. We've been freed from the law. The only way we can serve the law is if we choose to serve the law. It's our choice. God has already set us free from it. If we want to go back, just like the Galatians, it's our choice to go back. We may not realize that's what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. So how do I know? If I've got law in my life, here are the indicators of law. Number one, you can continuously deal with guilt, shame, and condemnation. 
I think I just nailed everybody, <laughs> me included. If you have guilt, shame, and condemnation in your life, it's because there's law alive in your life. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and they took the fruit from the tree, what happened? It says their eyes were opened. Open to what? Open to the fact that they were naked. Now, were they naked before? Yeah. But what changed? They were all of a sudden ashamed of their nakedness. They shame came upon them and revealed to them a perspective of nakedness they never had before. So when God comes looking for them, what do they do? They hide. Why? Because they're afraid of their shame and they feel guilty and condemned. That didn't come from God. God pursued them. He said, hey, where'd you go? Where'd everybody go? It's awful lonely out here. And then he says to them, Where'd you go? And Adam says, hey, we're over here. Uh, I hid because I was naked and I was afraid. And God asked him, God asked him this very interesting question. He said, who told you you were naked? Who told them they were naked? No one. The serpent didn't say, here, take of the fruit. And they bite and goes, ooh, you're naked. <laughs> Woohoo, you're naked. He didn't say that. He didn't need to say it. Because shame, guilt, and condemnation set it for them and to them. And God said, who told you you were naked? And in that next part of that question, he says, did you eat of the fruit I told you not to eat? How did he know? Okay, obviously, he's omnipotent. We know he knows everything. But why did he ask the question? Because he knew the only way they would know that they were naked is if they were ashamed of it. And the only way that shame comes is through the law. If you have guilt, shame, and condemnation in your life, it's because law is alive in your life. Paul says in Romans 8, For there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you're freed from the law, you're freed from guilt, shame, and condemnation. The guilt, shame, and condemnation hung on the cross with Jesus. It has been taken away from us for eternity. But if you're still dealing with it, it's because law is alive in your life. So guilt, shame, and condemnation. That's number one. Number two, fear of man. How many deal with the fear of man? Why does law bring the fear of man? Because law came through a man. And it always comes through men. It always comes through men or women. It doesn't matter. It always comes through man. In John 1, John says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. The law came through a man. It's not a mistake that God gave the law to Moses to give to the people. But he sent Jesus to bring truth. He came himself the second time. Here's the thing. The law always comes through man. And when the law comes through man, 
and you don't keep the law or you don't keep the rules, who do you fear the most? The opinions of others. And then you project that onto God and you say, they don't like me. That means God doesn't like me. Fear of man always indicates law because law comes through man. There's no need to fear God because he sees you as Jesus. Not in that respect. Obviously, there's a holy fear of God in that he's in control of all things and, man, he can take care of everything. But we are his sons and daughters. When those folks came up out of the baptismal water, remember when Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and a voice spoke from heaven and said, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What had Jesus done for God to say, I am well pleased? He hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't even turned water into wine. He had done nothing. He was a carpenter. And here's the thing. When you come up out of that baptism of water, heaven opens and says, Behold, my beloved son or daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Why is he well pleased in us? Not because of what we've done, but because of Jesus in us. It's the same word. It has nothing to do with what we've done. But law causes us to fear man because it focuses on what I'm doing or what I'm not doing or I haven't done enough or I haven't met the standard of law or the expectations of others, so I fear them. That's another indicator of the presence of law. Fear of man. And then number three, and this is a big one, is the desire to control others. The desire to control others. Law in us causes us to want to control the actions of other people. And we look at others and go, you can't do that. They can't... You can't do that. It's against the rules. You can't show up 10 minutes late for service. That's against the rule. You can't skip church to go watch the Cowboys. That's against the rules, man, don't you know? There's something wrong with you. The Cowboys are going to lose anyways. (laughs) It's just God getting back at you because you broke the rules, man. In Romans chapter 2, Paul has a very interesting discourse about people who try and control others through the law. Now, I'm going to read this out of the Message Bible because I really like the way it interprets and focuses in on this one specific aspect. Now, if you don't have the Message Bible, just listen listen to what Paul says here. It's chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. He says this, Don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your religion and take it easy, feeling smug because you're an insider to God's revelation, a connoisseur of the best things of God, informed of the best doctrines. I have a special word of caution for you. 
who are sure that you have it all together yourself and because you know God's revealed word inside and out, feel qualified to guide others through their blind alleys, dark nights, and confused emotions. While you're guiding others, who's going to guide you? I'm quite serious. While preaching, don't steal. Are you going to rob people blind? Who would, who would suspect you? The same with adultery, the same with idolatry. You can get by with almost anything if you front it with an eloquent talk about God and his law. The line from Scripture, it's because of you, Jew, it's because of you Jews that the outsiders are down on God, shows it's an old problem that isn't going away. Now, how many people are down on Christians because they're being encountered with law? They're being encountered. They're not having an encounter with Jesus. They're having an encounter with law. And James says in James chapter 2, because, you know, you say, well, you know, I'm telling people the right things, you know, but I'm, I'm not stealing and I'm not committing adultery. But here's what James says. James says... If you keep the whole law except for one area, you're guilty of everything. So you may not be doing the same thing you're telling other people to do, but if you're breaking the law somewhere else, you're just as guilty, brother. You're just as guilty. So the desire to control others is an aspect of law because the controlling aspect of law focuses on actions. It doesn't focus on the person. Law doesn't care about the person. It cares about conformity to rules. God is more interested in you than he is in your conformity to some arbitrary set of rules. He's after you. He's after your heart. But when we try and control others, we're, we're, you know, we, we don't care about them. We just care about their actions, that they follow the rules. And we think and we're deceived into believing that, man, if they just follow the rules, it'll make me happy. It's all about me, baby. <laughs> it's all about me. Don't show up late to church because it's ticking me off. You know, they sang that song I don't like. They can't do that. That's, that's against the rules. And how many people are miserable who try and apply the law? Because law always brings death. Always. So that's the last indicator. We try and control others. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, 100% of us in here, me included, are somewhere in this list to one degree or another. But I'm not saying that to condemn you because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm saying that to reveal it to you because my goal tonight is to show that the law brings death so we can let it go. Because we've got to let this go. We have got to get rid of law in our lives if we're going to serve God because we can't do both. We cannot serve both God and law. Now, I want to give you an illustration of what it means to, to have law operating in your life. Because it's one thing to say, okay, all right, I recognize, yeah, you know, I like to control people or 
Man, I'm dealing with guilt, shame, condemnation. All right, okay. Well, what does that mean? What is the destructive nature of that in regards to your actual life? What actually happens? In the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the people, Today I set before you life and death, both good and evil. Choose life. And you know, that choice is before all of us every single day. We have the choice between good and evil, or good and bad. Now, I want to give you two examples. The thing about law, law only focuses on our actions. It doesn't go after the heart. Law does not have the power to transform our heart. Only Jesus has that power. That's why the law doesn't work. And the law was never meant to transform our heart. The law, God didn't make a mistake when he gave us the law. If you read through Galatians, you'll see there's a specific purpose for the law to bring us to Jesus. And once we've gotten to Jesus, we don't need the law anymore. We're supposed to let it go. But here's what happens. If I am allowing law to dictate my life. And again, I'm going to use my own life as an example here. For many years, when I was dealing with the pornography, as a Christian, not as a non-Christian, as a non-Christian, you know, the law is for them. (laughs) Because that's the only way to, to keep them in certain boundaries, and even some. But nonetheless, as a Christian, here's what would happen. There would be seasons in my life when I would not look at pornography. And I would feel somewhat good about myself. So I was over here doing good. And forgive my drawing skills, but here's a set of feet. Uh, They're really bad. (laughs) But my feet were on the good side. My feet were over there on the good side. But in my heart, I wanted to go look at porn. And this created tension. There was always tension here in my life, and I didn't understand. Why is there tension? What's, where's this tension coming from? And eventually, my feet would give in, because you will never be able to walk in a way that's contrary to your heart forever. The thing that moves is not your heart, it's your feet. If you look up the definition of integrity in the Bible, one of the definitions of integrity is undivided. We all come to a place where we have to have integrity, even if that means my feet eventually moved over here, which it did, and I started looking at porn again. But here's the interesting thing. When my feet moved over here, that tension disappeared. And I never understood that. I'm like, wow, why does the tension go away? But here's what was going on. The tension was my attempt to follow the law. I wasn't looking for my heart to be transformed. I was just looking for my actions to fall in line with the rules so I could look good to myself and to other people. And I would draw my identity from my actions. Well, I'm not looking at porn, so everything's okay. But the problem with this, in this tension, is I'm deceiving myself. I'm deceiving myself. 
I'm deceiving everybody else, but more importantly, I'm deceiving myself. I am a divided man. And James tells us that a divided person is unstable in all their ways. And they should not expect to get anything answered from God because they're divided. So if I'm sitting here praying to God and I am divided, man, I, don't expect, I shouldn't expect anything because I'm not serving God. I'm serving the law to move my feet. The law can only move my feet. It cannot move my heart. And eventually, no matter how hard I try and hold on to that law, it eventually moves over here under my feet because my feet will always eventually follow my heart. Now, on the flip side, I eventually got to a point, and this is true in a lot of other areas, but I eventually got to the point where it was just the opposite. My feet were over here, but my heart all of a sudden had changed. Now, that tension was there again, but it was there for a completely different reason. It was there because I was in the wrong place. The only person that can change your heart is Jesus. Now, here's what happens a lot of times for a Christian. The Lord comes in, he begins to change your desires. The Bible says the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean he gives you what you want. It means he changes your heart. He changes the things that please you, that you want to do. He changes those desires. And as my desires began to change and my feet were in the wrong place, all of a sudden that tension was back. And what in the world is going on? And you know, there's a lot of Christians today who have tension, whose feet are over here, but their heart is over here, and they haven't experienced this yet. Because at some point, as long as your heart stays here, your feet are eventually going to move. Because your heart will always direct your feet. And God is more interested in your heart than he is in your feet. This is why we cannot judge based on outward appearance. That's what, that's what God told Samuel when he was looking for David to anoint his king. Samuel said, oh, pfft. It must be this guy. He's definitely got the kingly look. And God said, "Mm -mm -mm, it's not him. And he goes down the line of all the seven brothers. And the Lord tells Samuel, he said, look, man looks at the outward, but I look at the heart. All the seven brothers' feet were in the right place to be anointed, but their hearts were in the wrong place. David's feet we're out in the field tending the shepherd or tend, tending the sheep because his heart was in the right place. And what did God do? He said, "Go get my anointed one, the one whose heart is a man after mine. I don't care where his feet are; I know where his heart is." Control always focuses on the feet. Jesus always focuses on the heart. Transformation in the Christian life is an inside-out deal. It's not an outside-in. This is why law never works. This is why we have to let go of law. Personally, 
corporately and then publicly. We will never win the world with law. It'll never happen. And the only way we can win the world with the gospel is if corporately we're walking in the gospel. And the only way we can corporately walk in the gospel is if personally we're walking in the gospel. We have to let go of law. But that's a personal choice. Just like I said a little bit ago, God has already freed us from the law. It's us who choose to follow it. If we choose to follow law, the only thing that's going to move is our feet. We have got to get before the Lord and say, God, change my heart. Change my heart. Because when my heart moves, I know eventually my feet have to move. They have no choice. Even if they're on the wrong side, eventually you will become in a person of integrity. Undivided. And in this position, you can ask what you wish in his name and he will give it. In Jesus' name. Amen? So let me, look at the, let me take a quick look at the armor from the perspective of law and how law distorts the armor. Because we're talking about the armor. And it's important to understand how this distortion takes place because if you're using law as your armor, it's not going to work. All right, the belt of truth. We talked about the belt of truth. The belt of truth is our identity, that core change, that truth that's been placed in us. But if we're allowing law in our lives the law will deceive us into drawing our identity from our ability to keep the law. It will draw our identity from what we're doing or not doing rather than what Jesus has done for us. The breastplate of righteousness, our worth before God. If I'm following the law, my righteousness is based on people's opinion, fear of man. How, what, is that, what do other people say about me? Will be my breastplate of righteousness. And if that's the breastplate of righteousness I put on, man, it is paper thin. And it ain't going to do any good. The shoes of the gospel of peace are firm foundation from which we can move forward in confidence. If we follow law, fear and intimidation will steal our boldness and confidence. We'll be afraid of others. We'll be intimidated of what they possibly could say. So our boldness and confidence will be robbed of us. The shield of faith, our authority to take action because our worth is not based on, or because our worth is not based on others' opinions. Well, I'm sorry, because our worth is based on other opinions in the law, we won't feel worthy enough to take any type of action. We won't, we won't witness. I don't care how much law it is. <laughs> We're not going to witness. We're not going to volunteer for ministry. We're not going to share what God's doing because we don't feel we have that authority because we don't feel worthy. So it robs us of that authority. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that which is supposed to bring life and a weapon against the enemy has now become death to us because we've turned it to law. And it has no power against the enemy when it's law. Because when it's law, 
It does just the opposite of what we want it to do, and it feeds sin. So this that we want to get rid of, if I'm using the Word of God as law, I'm actually feeding sin rather than my spirit. And then finally, the helmet of salvation, a sound mind. If you have law active in your life, your thoughts will rage out of control and continuously repeat the lies that cause us to view our lives from the perspective of a victim. It's that tape. It rolls over and over, and we just can't stop it. Our minds are out of control believing the lies that we've been told, believing we're not worthy, and we run these scenarios and experiences over and over again in our lives that feed the victim mentality. That's what happens to the armor if we're walking with law. It takes all the power out of it, and it makes it worthless. So tonight, I want to take a few minutes and give us the opportunity to let go of law. So would you stand with me? So I don't know if any of this hit you guys as far as the indicators of law, guilt, shame, condemnation, fear of man, or the attempt to control others. Uh, My guess is it's hit a lot of you. Because it, it's hit me right square between the eyes, baby, <laughs> to one degree or another. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Don't be afraid to admit you made a mistake. Law requires perfection. God requires us to throw ourselves on the mercy seat and ask for his grace. That's what he wants. He knows we're not perfect. He's not asking us to be perfect. What he is asking us to do is not set aside the grace he's given us to cover our mistakes. Don't set aside that grace and believe the law. So tonight, if you've got any of this going on in your life, I want you to come forward. I want you to just come down right now.